Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. best. I love you guys. Look at the best church. Thanks, Jackson. Give it up for Jackson. Also one of my students. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah, Jackson. It's your moment. All right. So uh, like I said, my name is Matt Franny, and I'm the student ministries um, young adults pastor here at, at Seaco. Such a privilege and honor uh, for me to be here with you guys uh, this morning. Now, uh, you'll be kind of, you'll, you'll notice something that every time I get the, the privilege of, of speaking uh, to you guys and to be, do anything in main campus, I remind you that I am the youth pastor. And I'll be honest with you, I do that almost selfishly. So you got to give me some permission to do things that like real adults don't get to do, you know? And so if I say something, I don't know, that's like silly, obnoxious, uh, offensive, or just incoherent, you can kind of just go like, ah, he's the youth pastor, you know, like, hey, he's, no, he's, no, he's no Cody or Doyle, but maybe with your prayer uh, one day. And so anyways, as a youth pastor, there is nothing more than I love than crowd participation, as long as it isn't coming from like an obnoxious, super loud sixth grader. But what we're going to do in a second is I'm going to give you a question, and uh, I think it'll be up on the screens. Uh, I'm going to give you 30 to 45 seconds to turn and discuss this question. It's going to kind of set us up for where we're headed today. Here's the question. What was something you did as a kid that now as an adult you look back and realize that it was foolish and had consequences? All right, so turn to a neighbor. I'm going to give you guys uh, 30, 40 seconds. Ready, set, go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up. All right, so if you are anything like me, you glance back into um, any time other than your life in this moment, in this, this moment too, you're, you've had kind of some foolish decisions and made some foolish, um, foolish choices. For me growing up, um, I definitely made a lot of foolish decisions. And uh, it all started in fourth grade. It started a lot earlier than that. But fourth grade is a silly story that I get to share with you today because I'm a youth pastor and I have to share a silly story. Fourth grade, I begged and pleaded with my parents to give me this thing called a go-ped. Now, for those of you guys that aren't cool, you don't know what a go-ped is. A go-ped is a gas scooter. It has a little lawnmower engine on the back of it. It goes like 19, 20 miles per hour in its stock form. And so in fourth grade, for some reason, my parents made the foolish decision of getting me a gas scooter that went 19 or 20 miles per hour. And so every single Christmas, every single time I'd mow the lawn, every single time I'd wash my parents' car, every every single time I would would get uh, money for my birthday, whatever it was, I would save that money to buy high-performance parts to make this go-ped go a little bit faster. And then I figured, all right, so I'm going to have the fastest go-ped in town because all my friends had one. There are about 10 of us that had one. I was going to make this annual race that at the end of the year, everyone had to put $50 in in someone's sweaty helmet. And whoever had the fastest go-ped down a specific street called Marion over here, whoever the fastest go-ped, who would win all of the, the quarters and dollars and stuff inside the, inside the helmet so they can reinvest it in their go-pen and win every single year. It was brilliant, right? A little entrepreneur in me, right? And so this one year, um, I was up and I was in the, I was in the, the final race and I, I get my go-pen started and we're off. And I'm racing my buddy Philip. 
uh, for, for all of the money, right? All $32. And so uh, we're racing down, down this street, and he gets ahead of me because his GoFood was faster in the beginning, but mine was faster at the end. You'll see. And so um, he gets about 20 feet ahead of me, and uh, I'm rapidly approaching. He's going about 40 miles per hour. I'm going about 45 miles per hour, and I'm in fifth grade at this time. And <laughs> at this time, the wind kicks up, and he didn't buckle his helmet. His helmet falls off, lodges in my front tire. I fly, right, like Superman, over the bars and hit the ground and literally like roll like all 61 pounds of me, like 61 feet, right? I get up and I'm like, am I alive right now? So I grab my go-pit, I, I drag it over to the curb and I'm just like, you know, it's like, am I alive right now? And I glance down and I look on my pinky and I see that there's blood coming down. I'm like, so I was wearing a jacket and I tried to pull back my, my shirt and I, I couldn't get it back. So I was like, I'm not wearing a watch. So I put my, my hand in there, I felt something and I was like, and I unhook it from whatever that was, and I pull it back and just, bam, my bone sticking right out of my wrist. Losing my mind, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, they're going to amputate my favorite arm. I was losing my mind, right? Like, oh no. So at this time, my buddies come running over there a half mile away. They're, you know, running. My buddy Steve, like, picks me up, runs me over to my parents' house, and my mom takes me to Los Al Hospital. This was on, a, I think, a Friday, it was Saturday morning. And so I needed to go see a specialist. They, like, pumped me with drugs or whatever else they had to do. And on Monday morning, I had to see a specialist. And the doctor was saying, hey, we're going to have to re-break your wrist, re-break your wrist. It's going to be better. I'm like, okay, great, re-break it now. And they're like, no, you need to see a specialist. It's kind of like a challenging thing. And I was like, all right, whatever. So Monday morning, my parents take me to this specialist, and I'm laying on this bed, and they have kind of this thing that my, my fingers were wrapped in that was suspending my arm. The, the, the doctor comes over. I don't know what kind of doctor this is, a demon. But anyway, so they come over, <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, all right, Matthew, are you ready? I'm going to re-break your wrist. And I'm like yeah, why are you getting so close, man? And he starts grabbing my arm. He's like, all right, count to three. One, two, and just, and just resets my wrist, right? And all of the blood leaves me. I am pale, right? I am Casper, right? I'm like, I am like, oh, oh my, oh my, right? I share that silly story with you, right? Because uh, it, I made a lot of foolish decisions. One of my parents made a foolish decision. If you have a fifth grader, don't buy them a, a gas go better, right? Um, but for me, as I glance back into a lot of the decisions that I've made, I realized that I made a lot of foolish decisions in my life. And if you were like me, luckily for us, the Bible has tons of good things and tons of bad things to say about people who are foolish, especially when they think they're wise. Today, we're going to be jumping into one of my favorite stories in Scripture told by Jesus about, you guessed it, foolishness. When you think about it, there's just something, right, about a good story that has the capacity to draw us in. It lures us in. Stories can capture our attention and keep us focused while simultaneously, almost covertly, teaching us something important without us even knowing. It's the reason I think that most pastors and youth pastors included have learned to become a good storyteller because I've learned that to truly teach something to someone, you almost have to invite their imaginations into a journey with its destination and a deep biblical truth or maybe a revelation. And it's for this reason that Jesus told stories. In fact, commentators for centuries now have said that Jesus was the master storyteller. Now, the stories that Jesus told are called parables. And for my friends here who didn't grow up in church, or maybe you're new to this whole Christianity faith thing, so excited you're here. Let me give you a quick definition of what a parable is. A parable is a fictitious story told by Jesus to illustrate or teach a truth. In other words, it's a fake story Jesus spontaneously told that would teach a truth about something important, a truth about mankind, the human condition, sin, human nature, God himself and his nature. It could be about heaven or even hell or maybe even eschatology. That's the study of the end times or even God's judgment. Today we're going to be uh, journeying through one of Jesus' most famous yet equally offensive parables called the parable of the wise and foolish builder. Now my title today for that's going to kind of set us up so you guys understand where we're headed my title is this, there are three types of people, but only two types of builders. There are three types of people, but only two types of builders. The three types of people are, number one, someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to call this person, because Scripture calls this person a disciple, a follower, simply a Christian. Number two is the person who thinks they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but doesn't. The Bible calls this person lukewarm. Cody talked about this a few weeks ago. 
And finally, we have the third type of person, someone who doesn't care to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to call this person the non-Christian. Now, they are either an atheist, an agnostic, or they're just a part of another worldview or philosophical system. See, my hope and prayer is that this message will speak to each type of person because I'm going to be upfront with you, though. This message is going to be the most uncomfortable for the second category of person because Jesus has more to say about lukewarm followers, people who say they're followers of Jesus Christ, than almost any other category of person altogether. So quickly, as we jump into where we're headed today and what we're going to be talking about, I want you to quickly envision the house that you live in right now. So if I were to ask you to describe your house to me, you would probably um, begin maybe with where you live, right? Garden Grove, Rossmore, La Salle, Cypress, Buena Park, somewhere along those lines, right? So you talk to me about its location. Then you'd probably talk about the color, right? Because you saved all your pennies and your nickels to paint the house the color you guys wanted it to paint. Maybe you talk about the design or architectural features your wife forced you to put into your house, maybe. Maybe you talk about it's a two-story house, it's square footage. You'd probably tell me about your favorite or least favorite feature of your house, and that is if it does or does not have AC. And then you would probably tell me your favorite place, like mine, the refrigerator. But here's what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't tell me about its foundation. Right? I can't imagine any one of you come to me and be like, all right, look, my house has got a 12-inch slab with one-inch rebar running all throughout under it, right? No, no one, I don't even know if that's really what a house is, I have no idea, but that sounds right, right? Like, yeah, it's better than logs or something, right? None of you guys would do that, right? But it's the foundation of your house that makes all of the difference. See, this is not only true of your house, but it is also equally true of your life. See, in our story today, we're going to find that Jesus compares and contrasts two builders. One wise, and you guessed it, one foolish. See, it's important to know that Jesus in this story, and what we're going to be talking about today, is not just for people who are welders and carpenters, contractors, or architects. It is for all of us, because building a house in this story is just simply an analogy for building a life. The point is this, that Jesus is making is you are a builder, and you are building a life. And the foundation that you choose is the most important decision you are ever going to make. If you guys have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24. I'm in the ESV version. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen um, behind me. It says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine, highlight does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So remember, three types of people, the Christian, lukewarm, non-Christian, two types of builders. We now have been introduced to builder number one or foundational option number one, building your life on the rock. I want you to, if you remember, back when you were in school, every good teacher said, there's no such thing as a dumb question. So our question is, what is the rock? And he clarifies it here. He says it's his word. Now I want you to notice with me, though, that Jesus says hearing is not enough. He's intentional enough to do something pretty painful. He draws a line in the sand and says, you must act upon my words if you're going to build your life on a solid foundation. So if you're taking notes for you note takers, point number one is pretty simple. It's this. Jesus says you are building your life on his words only as you obey them, not as you hear them. Let me explain. Raise your hand with a silly example. Raise your hand if you floss daily. Keep your hands up. The rest of us look around. These are the liars at our church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, sorry. I'm just kidding. I'm making no friends. All right. Um, Yes, yeah, So the all-knowing Google says, um, the omniscient Google says about 30% uh, of, uh, of Americans floss their teeth daily, which means 70% of us, right? 70% of us don't floss our teeth daily. But let me ask you a question. We know how to floss, right? It doesn't take a PhD. You, didn't go to, you, know, you don't go to college going to floss. You know how, so you have the knowledge. And may, in fact, maybe you've probably been to the dentist's office and you've seen those charts, right? The importance of it. And if not, you have to have this like laser that like eats plaque or something. I don't, you've seen it all, right? Maybe your, your, your dentist has even advised you to floss. And maybe at some point you made the commitment, right? You're like, all right, I'm convicted. I'm going to make this commitment to change and floss my teeth so that my teeth don't fall out or whatever it is. And so you went to Walmart or, I don't know, CVS, Rite Aid, 
and you decided I was going to buy that, you know, that, that Crest 3D white mint, this floss, you know, whatever, right? You, you decided I was going to buy this stuff. I was actually going to do it. And so you made a commitment, and you did pretty good for one, two, three, four, five days, maybe a week, two weeks, three weeks. But maybe on the fourth week or maybe on the fifth week, you kind of stopped flossing. Let me ask the question, why did you stop? And the answer is because deep, 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 deep down, you didn't actually believe that your teeth were going to rot and fall out if you didn't floss. So you stopped. See, here's the truth we all know, and I need you to hear this because this is going to build the foundation or the framework for where we're headed today. It is the, your beliefs inform your behaviors, actions, and attitudes. What you deem to be true informs the way in which you live. That makes sense. Jesus' point is the same. Real faith is demonstrated in a faithfulness. Real faith is demonstrated in a faithfulness to God's word and will and that informs our behaviors, actions, attitudes, and lifestyles. By the way, that is the very essence of faith, right? Think of the word faith. Faith is that you would be faithful. It's that you would be obedient. We have to understand that this idea of faith is so much more than believing certain theological presuppositions about God, about knowing your Bible or things like that. It's, it's, it's actually more than that. Because you need to see, and what I want us to see today, is that there is a world difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus. There's a world difference between believing in Jesus and believing Jesus when he says certain things about the way in which you live your life, the way that you invest your life. There's a world difference there. Well, how do we know that? Because in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus' brother said this. He said, you believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, demons and Satan himself have more probably of an orthodox theology, that's to say a right way of thinking about God, than you and I probably do, but they have no faith. Why? Because faith is just as much about believing the right things as living out the right way. Could it be could it be that the reason so many church-going people's lives look no differently than the lives of their unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers is because they don't actually believe Jesus. They don't actually believe what Christ says about the blueprint of this world, so they invest in, dream of, hold valuable the things of this world that everyone else is holding valuable. In some sense, they're tethering their value to their valuables. So they experience the same hopelessness and restlessness that other people in the world are feeling. Let me give you a silly one. We know the Bible says, like in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, you can't love money, or some money can't uh, uh, buy happiness. Wealth cannot buy happiness. And we hear things like that, yet we live a life that says, like, I would rather cry in a Bentley than a convertible PT Cruiser, right? Let me give you maybe a more, uh, more painful uh, illustration from a youth pastor's perspective. And take this with a grain of salt. I'm a 28-year-old kid, youth pastor. I don't have kids of my own, just the kids that you bring. See, we know that the Bible also says you cannot love and make the pursuit of your life, that's the important part, the pursuit of your life, money and God. The Bible says you will despise one and love the other. You will hate one and love the other. Meaning if that you pattern your life after the desire to acquire a high network, net worth, most likely, most likely, in that pursuit, you're going to abandon or make compromises in your faith to achieve that. Now, the Bible is not against people that have air-conditioned homes, right? It's not the high networks. It's not... Not, I'm not against that in any sense of the way. It's saying that if you pattern your life, you make the sole desire to acquire high net worth, then that can be problematic. Now, most of us know that, yet we simultaneously push our kids to the breaking point with getting the very best grades, making sure they're starting on their sports teams and involving them in every single extracurricular activity possible in hopes they go to the very best college so they can get the very best salaries. So eventually they can live out their very best version of the American dream. But church, let me ask you a challenging question. Not a judgmental question. Let's hold the question out here. The question is this. How many... People, do you know who have the American dream and are actively living out kingdom values? 
Church, let me ask you another question. Statistically speaking, what are most church-going parents willing to let their child sacrifice to chase that dream? You know the dream, right? To become the starter on the team, to go to their dream college so they can get their dream, they can buy their dream home, so they can have the dream of like money, so much money coming out of their air conditioning vents, right? The answer is a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. But why? Because they don't actually believe Jesus. They don't actually believe God's word when it says making your life about these things and patterning your life the same way that other people are patterning and, and, and making their life about leads to the same emptiness. It's like as meaningless as the Bible says is chasing the wind. I love the way that uh, Paul said this in the book of Romans chapter 12 verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can test and approve what God's perfect, pleasing, and perfect will is. Friends, parents, shouldn't it be more important to discern God's will for your child's life through fasting and prayer, through inviting them into your faith and you into their faith, than to have them by default follow a pattern from a secular culture? See, the sad reality is, and studies show this, that most church-going parents care more about the flourishing of their kids' grades than they care about the flourishing of their kids' faith. Barna did a study in 2019 that uh, uh, showed this. Uh, out of um, all the, uh, uh, the study, certain evangelicals that were going into college, so 18, 19-year-olds, freshmen in college, 77% of them believed that their parents growing up, and these are church-going parents, cared more about their grades and their faith. So why? The article didn't go into that, but we have our answer. It's because they, they believe in a different pattern, one that's going to bring more stability here. See, raising their children up in the Lord stands second to raising their children up in the future workforce. See, the point that I'm drawing here is this is a direct result of a lack of real faith that leads to real disobedience in the way in which you are building your life, or at least the way you are encouraging your child to build theirs. Why? Because you build and act on what you believe to be true. You are chasing a pattern from someone's authority, molding your life around it. What is a pattern? A pattern is something that pre-exists you. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. That means that this world has a way of operating, a way of teaching its young to enter into the society and world. But so should we as Christians. You act and build on what you believe to be true, what is going to be the most fulfilling life, stable life. So you encourage, you set aside resources, open up opportunities so that your children can live out that future. Follow with me to verse 25, says this. And the rain fell and the flood came and the wind blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I want you to notice with me that Jesus did not say if the rain falls or if the flood comes or if the wind blows. He says, and the rain fell and the flood came and the wind blew. What he's saying here is it's an absolute certainty. The reality is we will all have storms we're going to go through in this life. And what this means is obedience to Jesus' word is not protection from the troubles, it is protection in the troubles. I wasn't clever enough to come up with that, but about everything I said, I wasn't clever enough. <laughs> you know, last time I had the privilege of speaking, um, I think in February, I, uh, I shared a story um, about losing my dad uh, to alcohol. And uh, going through that, I, I realized that God doesn't always protect us from troubles, he protects us in the trouble. That's what I learned. Because I look at the rearview mirror of my life, I can see that God has always provided. He's always been good. He's always protected me. So that helps me look through the windshield of the future and say he's going to continue to protect me. He's going to continue to open up doors. He's going to continue to be present and to be like a good, loving father that is going to continue to provide and protect his children, just like any good, loving father here does. If you to follow with me, verse 26 says this, and everyone who hears these words of mine and highlight does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, and the flood came, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Remember, three types of people, a Christian, lukewarm, a non-Christian. Two types of builders we've now been introduced to. The first, foundational option number one, the rock. Second option, foundational option number two, building your life on the sand. So here, Jesus says something interesting. He modifies his original parable. Now applies it negatively to hear and don't do. This is the opposite of a wise man is what? A foolish man. But here's what's funny. Here's what's interesting. This is, this is coming from the very mouth of Jesus. The word that he uses here for foolish is the Greek word moros, where we get the English word moron. He says there's the wise man, there's the moron. So church, let me ask you a question. Why did the foolish man, or let's use Jesus' word, why did the moron build his house on the sand? The answer is because it's easier. Because it takes more time and more energy to build on the rock and costs more. It's easier and faster to build on the sand. And look, for a while, no one's probably going to notice. But somewhere along the line, you're going to pay for building on a weak foundation. The same is true when it comes to the foundation of your life, because it's easier to go with the crowd. It takes less time and less energy to maintain a superficial, surface-level type of faith, where faith is almost a one category. It's an event that happens every week. It's a one category of an hour of a week, not an all-encompassing way of life. I'm going to say something now that's going to be offensive, and so if it does offend you, uh, don't email me, meet with me. And so uh, if you are going to email me, just say, I'm offended, when are we meeting? And I will open up the next whole week to meet with you. That type of faith does not save because that type of faith is not biblical. So it's funny, I, I, was, I wrote this message and I, uh, I fasted and pray, prayed and God rewrote the message. <laughs> and so do you guys mind if I preach a little bit? Like, in the beginning, I told you that there are three types of people and two types of builders. Three types of people that only have the option to build their lives on two different types of foundations. So the first type is a person who's a doer of God's word. Therefore, they are building by Jesus' own words their life on him, on the rock. God has promised you abundant life in John 10.10. 10. For the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give life and give it abundantly. He's promised his provision over your life. And finally, eternal life when this life is all over. The Bible says that he has written your name in the book of life or that Jesus has gone to prepare a way for you one day in heaven. Then we have the second type of person who thinks they have a relationship with God but will die to find out they have built their life on the sand. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 7, look up to verse 21. You'll see that it says, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And I will say to them on their day of appointment, depart from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. Think of the term, the endearingness of Lord, Lord. These are church-going people believing they actually have a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ, and they're going to die to find out that the Jesus they worship was one of their own fabrication. In the book of Luke chapter 13, there's an interesting encounter where this guy comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he says, for I tell you now that many will try to enter that way, but only a few will make it. That is painful. And finally, we have the third type of person. This is a non-Christian. This is the atheist. This is an agnostic. This is someone who's a part of a different worldview, religion, philosophical system. So glad you're here if that's you. But I want you to know that biblically speaking, from a biblical worldview, the Bible says that you too and these people too are building their lives in the sand because everything beside Christ is sand. See, for the remainder of our time today, I want to spend some time talking to the second and third type of person because Jesus has a different message for each of you even though you're the same type of builder. You're building on the same foundation. 
So let's start with the second type of person. In our story, in our story I want you to notice something with me. Jesus does something interesting. He inserts something interesting into this parable. He says this, hearer of God's wor word. So both of them are hearers of God's word. What does this mean? It means both of them go to church. Both read God's word. Both listen to sermons. Both probably have he is greater than I bumper stickers in the back of their Prius. And both have Je <laughs> Jesus changes everything bracelets. The difference, the difference between the two is not that one has heard God's word and one has not. Not that one has made a profession of faith and the other has not. Not that one joined rooted, one did not. Not that one got baptized and one did not. But the wise builder hears and enacts and the foolish one hears and does not obey. That means that this parable is designed for church-going people. Church-going people. And that's the reason that up front I said this is going to be the most uncomfortable conversation for churchy type of people. And so if you are here today and you're like, oh, I have a friend that needs to hear this. You are not hearing what I'm trying to say or what Jesus is trying to say. So church, let me ask you some challenging questions. Number one, how many of you are wise by this standard and how many of you are foolish? Let me rephrase it. How many of you are self-professing Christians hearing and not doing? This week I did some studies. I looked at some pure, pure research studies and some uh, Barna studies, surveys, statistics. Let me ask you some questions. Church, how many of you guys are self-professing Christians but you aren't in your Bibles daily or weekly? Did you know that nationwide, 13% of Christians read their Bible weekly? How many of you guys are here every single week, self-professing Christians, and you aren't serving anywhere? Meaning you're not engaged in the life of our church in any capacity or any way. It's just a one-hour-a-week type of thing. Did you know that 16% of Christians serve actively in their church? 16%. How many of you are sexually active outside of marriage? Christian Post article said 64% of unmarried evangelicals are. 64% of unmarried, single, evangelicals, Christians, are sexually active outside of marriage. That article tethered to another one. It was entitled, Everyone Sleeping Around, Including Christians. It said this, young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 who identify themselves as evangelicals or Christians are almost as sexually active as their non-Christian peers. The study was 80% of millennials that are evangelicals, church-going people, are sexually active. 87 of non-Christians. There's a 7% difference there. If I haven't offended you yet, let's keep going. This is like the real, the real one, right? How many of you guys are trusting God with your eternality, but not with your finances today? In other words, how many of us know the Bible says to give generously, but we're not? We know 10 to 15% of Christians tithe. If we're arguing with the 10% thing, I have other questions for you. The Bible just says to give generously. For some of you, that's more than 10%. Maybe some of you, it's, it's less than that. Are you giving generously? Here's the real painful question I'm asking you. I understand I'm making no friends today. Here's the real question. How much of your life is built on the sand, but you have convinced yourself it's actually on the rock? See, remember what Jesus says, what differentiates those who build on the rock is not that they sit in a church, not that they have raised their hands during worship, and not that they have heard a pastor speak a few times. It's that one doesn't do and one lives out what they say they believe. That is the difference there. In a commentary I was reading, one of the commentators said this. He said, has there ever been a time in church history over the last 2,000 years that has been so many nominal disobedient Christians and so few faithful obedient ones? No, I say not. I mean, the stats are showing this, right? It shows that we are, in large churches all across America, live lives that are no different. Christians live a life that's no different than their non-believing friends, families, and neighbors. The reason that self-professing Christians 
build their life in the sand isn't because of ignorance. It is because it is easier. It's easier to go with the crowd. Even though the book of Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says, to pick up our cross daily and walk. There is actually a true cost to living out a Christian faith and worldview. Let me ask you some more questions. If you haven't figured it out yet, I like asking questions. If you profess to follow Christ, how much of your life is that Christ asking of you? Let me give you some qualifying questions. Are you ever inconvenienced by your faith? Has it ever informed you to change your attitude, lifestyle, addiction, the way you treat your husband or wife, coworkers, neighbors, son or daughter? Does it burden you? Does it ever convict you to change? Does, does it change your financial freedoms because you give generously? And here it is, the most offensive thing I'm going to say all day. If the answer to these questions are no, it could be because you worship a Jesus that isn't real. He is one that you have fabricated in your own image. In the book of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 27, it says this, let's make man in our image. So we made them, male and female, in our image. This is God speaking into his Trinitarian nature, and he is saying, let's make man in our image. I know so many people, church-going people, have flipped that. They have made God in their image. Right? They have turned him into almost to a vending machine where they can go to church and put their prayer in, and that gets them the, the number they can press so that whatever they pray for falls out the bottom. Or like a four-leaf clover, a luck charm. Philosophically speaking, or ideologically, this is a, a worldview called moralistic therapeutic deism, and this actually is the predominant worldview that most Christians subconsciously adhere to. I wish we had more time to go into this, but basically what it is, moralistic. God cares more about you being moral than anything else. You know, like, it's kind of this idea like, okay, like, I'm closer to, like, Mother Teresa than Hitler. Okay, I'm chill. You know, like, a therapist. God is there just to kind of, like, it's a one-sided conversation. He doesn't have any input into your life, maybe. Deism. He's distant. He's far. Disengaged. He doesn't really want to be involved in your life until you need to get a good grade on a test or something at work or something like that. This is not the God of Scripture. Essentially what this view holds to and what it teaches is that it takes all of the attributes of the American dream and yet infuses it with all the nice and friendly attributes of God. You know, he's like loving, he's kind, he's a father, he's generous, he's giving. But yet it strips him of his justice, his holiness, and his glory. It strips Christianity for its call to be obedient, to be faithful. To change our lifestyles. It's almost as if there are many church-going people who read their Bibles and they use as a highlighter, not a yellow highlighter, but a Sharpie, blocking out verses they don't want to apply to them. Friends, this, the problem is this God doesn't exist. This faith is not real. This is not the God of Scripture. The way I've come to realize this is because as I've learned more about faith, I've begun to see that some of the things that I believed about God were not true. You know, when I was a kid, I would tell my mom that I'm never going to read the Bible. I didn't go to church all the time, but when I did, every other month or so, mom, I'm not going to read the Bible. Like, I don't want to listen to Toby Mac, and I don't want a Bible. You know, like, it's not, like, that's not, not what I'm trying to do, right? It's an irrelevant, stupid book that has nothing of relevance to today's world. It was written 2,000, in some cases, 3,600 years ago. How is that going to speak actively in my life today? I see I didn't know that in the book of First Timothy, it talks about God's word being alive, Hebrews 4.12. Mom, Christians don't need to go to church. I didn't know in the Bible it says to meet weekly. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, tells us to do that type of stuff. I'd watch my mom put money in the offering bucket as it went by, and I would get angry. Because I knew later on I would say, Mom, can I have some money to go hang out with my friends and grab lunch? And she would say, no, I don't have any money. I'd be like, you just dropped it into like a bucket somewhere. You know what? 
And she would just kind of have this like smirk on her face. She would laugh as if she knew someday I would be standing on a stage giving a sermon exactly like this. <laughs> like, Look, mom, I made it. <laughs> you know, believe me, there's some dark days. Uh, you know, I believe these things not because of the Bible, because of popular culture. I, maybe I modeled my faith after some hypocritical Christians that weren't living their faith out as the Bible says to, too. Right? I modeled my, my faith after as I looked at other hypocritical Christians and not actually from God's word. Why? Because I wasn't in God's word. You're putting way too much weight on your pastor, by the way, if you're not in God's word either. You know, you have to know what is written to live out what is written, to say what is written, to build your life on it. The Bible is the only book in human history that every time you open it, the author is with you every single time. See, there's other places on earth you can go for information, other for inspiration, but there's one place that we can go for transformation. That's God's word. That's what it says that it does. Many years ago, I had this exact conversation with someone I was close to, a friend, and it was 10 years ago or so, so I'm, I feel comfortable in sharing it with you now. Their response after this exact conversation was, look, Matt, I'm a Christian. I'm just not that kind of Christian. Like, I'm not a super Christian. And I kind of giggled. I was like, do you think, like, the disciples and apostles, like, wore capes? Like, what, what super Christian? Like, what does that mean? Then he said, look, Matt, you take this all too seriously. I said, let me ask you a question. I love you, man, but let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that I'm going to, on the day of my appointment, stand before God, look him in the eye, and have him look me in the eye? And he said, Matt, you read what I wrote. You did it and applied it into your life, and you took me too seriously. Why did you take me so seriously? Now, look, I'm still a mess. This is not a judgmental, like, like conversation. But do you really think on the day of my appointment, I look before God, he's going to point and look at me and say, you took me too seriously. Why did you take me so seriously? Or do you think he's going to look in the lives of other self-professing Christians and say, you did not take me seriously enough? That is what the Bible says. In the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verse 8, it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction, narrow is the one that leads to life, but few will find it. I'm so thankful that God brought a few people into my life at a providential time to have this conversation with me. One of these people was Cody, my brother-in-law. He sat me down when I was in high school. I was a mess. I was like drinking and partying, and I had like the mouth of a sailor in rough weather. It was rough, right? And he said, look, you're calling yourself a Christian, but nothing in your life emulates Christ. Do you not see that there's a disconnect there? And he took me to these, these passages. See, there is only one kind of Christian because there's only one narrow road, one gate to go through and one foundation a Christian can build upon. There's not that type of Christian and this type of Christian. There is a Christian, a follower of the way, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So all of that harshness and all of that bluntness, let me give you a little bit of good news. God has never asked from his children for moral perfection, just relational progression. God has never asked for moral perfection from his children, just relational progression. The Christian faith is like an infant who is staring in the eyes of their parent, and they stand up on their cute little two feet, and they lock their eyes, their mom and dad who loves them, and they want nothing more to walk forward and to be in the arms of their mother and father who loves them, but they fall. So all babies are like little tipsy human beings, right? So they've fallen over, and maybe something shiny and distracts them, and they kind of get distracted. But what ends up happening is they get back up, they lock eyes with their mom or their dad, and they move forward because they want nothing more to be in the arms of their mother and their father who loves them. So sure, right, you are going to fall. And you're going to get a little distracted and some shiny things are going to pop up into your life. But you need to make sure that you are moving forward into the arms of your heavenly father who loves you. 
Church, let me ask you a few more questions. Because this next question will maybe be the most important question I ask today. Because it's going to differentiate between am I the first type of Christian, the only type of Christian, or am I a lukewarm where the Bible says that he vomits me out of his mouth? Again, Cody talked about that a few weeks ago. And again, this is for Christians. Do you emulate more of Jesus' character, more of his humility, his generosity, forgiveness and mercy and love for people who are nothing like him more than you did last week? More than you did last month, last year, when you got out of rooted, when you were baptized, when you originally and firstly said yes to him, do you emulate more of him today than you did then? If the answer to this question is yes, you are doing what God has asked you. The answer to this question is no. Or nothing in your life looks any different than your non-believing friends, family, and neighbors. You need to change. The Bible says that you need to repent. Because you cannot continue to walk in disobedience and expect to run into God's blessing and provision over your life in the future. I want you to think about it this way. No one, no one is impressed with the win-loss record of a referee. Why? They're not engaged. They're not, they're not involved. The point is you must get involved with your faith to make a difference, an impact in this world. And God wants your life to have impact. God wants your life to make a difference. In fact, it is the reason he has created you. So your question, if you are a follower of Christ today, what is my next faith step? How can I be more faithful today? If you pray for faith, God gives it in the form of an opportunity to be faithful. So what areas of disobedience exist in your life? What are you saying no to that you need to say yes to? So now I want to talk to the third type of person. This is a non-Christian. It's an atheist, agnostic, someone who's a part of another religion. So glad you're here today. I do what I do for you. A few things I want you to know. Number one, 99% of everything I just said wasn't for you. So like, let's start with a clean slate. A few things I want you to do. Number one, God has so much for you. Number two, I believe God created you on purpose and for a purpose. God created you on purpose and for a purpose. And that he is better at building a life than you are. He's built billions of them over a really long time. I had the honor of speaking with Doyle um, over COVID uh, at our main campus. And we were actually right over here speaking. And it was online because we had in-person services yet. And he asked me to speak on Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It's the passage that Paul rewrote, for we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What that means is that we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. God has good things for us. In that, I, I, I gave a, a, a moment where I shared with my dad, uh, in a moment that I had with him, because that passage ends with we are created to be his handiwork. God is intentionally fabricating your life for good things. The moment I had with my dad, he came in my room one day and, and he, he said, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And walked into our back room that was overlooked our, our backyard and he had a glass of whiskey in his hand and he said, Matt, I want to I talk to you and tell you some things that are really on my heart and I don't want you to make some mistakes that I've been making. All right, dad? You know, I just retired from being a police officer a year ago. Yeah. I've never felt so empty in my entire life. I have never felt like I had no purpose to exist. Do I have a purpose to exist? This is the first time my dad was ever asking questions like this. I looked into his eyes, and I've never seen someone's eyes like this before. It was as if his eyes were a window into the depravity of his heart. He was just crying. It was in that moment, for those of you who know, my dad was an atheist. This illustration came to me. I said, Dad, you remember that tree we had in our backyard, that big, ugly tree? He said, yeah. I said, 
Imagine one day, let's say I was five years old, and I, you saw me go to the garage, and I grabbed some two-by-fours and some drywall and some nails and a hammer and a screw driver and a bunch of random other things, and I said, I was going to go build a fort. And so you see me like taking all of this stuff out to the backyard, and I'm dragging your tool belt behind me, and it's making a line in the wood floor, and you're angry, but you, you see, you see like, like well, what is he doing? And so I say, I'm building, I'm building a tree fort, Dad. And you say, well, I'd love to help, son. And, and, and I said, no, Dad, I got it. And are you sure? And I said, no, yeah, I, I want to I do it on my own. And you're like, all right. And so for the next 30 minutes, you're watching, observing how I'm building this tree fort. You see that I'm like hitting my fingers, and I'm all bloody, and I don't even have the strength to lift the two-by-fours above my head. I said, in that moment, Dad, how much better would that fort be if I, as the kid, gave up control and invited you, my father, to help? I mean, you're not a carpenter, right? But you're more capable than I am. You could build something better than I could. Then I said, Dad, how much better could your life be if you gave up control and invited your Heavenly Father to help? How much better? How much full of substance, joy, and beauty could that life be? See, what I didn't know, as I look hindsight, my dad would pass away just two short weeks after that conversation. And I'm forever grateful that God had me that opportunity to have that conversation with my dad. But I'm also reminded. I'm reminded of the lostness that God saved me from. And I'm reminded of the lostness that many people still experience today, the loneliness that many people experience today. So a few things if you're not a follower of Christ. Number one, I believe God created you on purpose and for a purpose. Number two, God doesn't just save you some, or from something, but to something. Not just from something, but to something. To an incredible purpose, his redemptive plan for mankind. And then finally, I want you to know that a life that it's in the hands of its creator has the potential to become a better life than if it remains in the hands of what is created. What I want you to know is God is better at building a life than you are. And so you can trust him with the material of your life and know he's going to take care of you. And so as we end today, I want you to know the gospel. The gospel is so much more than an entrance exam into heaven. It is the starting point for a transformed life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so today, so today if you want a life of purpose, a life of joy, impact, meaning, one that can withstand the storms of this life, Give your life over to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that you are a God that is involved, one God that is loving, one God that is merciful. But Father, you're also a God that is perfect, and what that means is you are going to be a God that is convicting for imperfect people. And so, Lord, I ask God that as you continue to move in our hearts, Lord God, may we be cognizant of the areas of our lives that we're disobedient. And God, may, us, may we not stand before you on our day of appointment and you say, Lord, or we say, Lord, and you say, you never knew us. And so, Father, today we make a proclamation in our hearts, God, that we will not be people who would just honor you with our mouth, but we will also honor you in our hearts. So, Father, I ask that you would convict us. And for the people here who don't know you, I ask, Lord God, that you would move in their heart, Lord, and show, Father, how much you love and care for them. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Guys, I want to thank you so much for being here this weekend. Hey, if you need uh, someone to pray with you, there'll be a bunch of people down here. And if I offended you, make sure you email me. Um, I'll see you guys next week. Love you guys. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.